Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants, indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. Thank you for traveling with Amex Platinum. To your right, you'll see Oceanside Relaxation at a fine hotel and resort property. When booked through Amex Travel, you can enjoy complimentary breakfast for 2 and 4 p.m. late checkout. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. When you have health insurance, it's easy to forget about your out-of-pocket costs. That can be a lot of money. But are your bills accurate? Well, it's estimated that over 50% of medical bills contain errors. HealthLock can help you. HealthLock technology securely connects with your insurance and flags any overbilling, wrong codes, and fraud. You can even have HealthLock work on your behalf to get money back from select past bills. To date, HealthLock has helped its members save over $130 million. So to save, visit HealthLock.com today. That's HealthLock.com today. Lessons from the world's top professors. Anytime, anyplace. World history examined and science explained. This is One Day University. Welcome. And we're back on the untold history of sports in America. I'm your host, Mike Coscarelli. Last time, we discussed international sports as the Cold War took a hold of the country and the world. This week, we'll discuss one of the great American sports icons and how he changed the landscapes of how athletes behave publicly around social and political issues. Muhammad Ali who I'm sure you've heard of, used his platform and celebrity to speak out against racism in this country, and his refusal to fight in the Vietnam War nearly cost him his career. Not to mention, he also kicked everybody's ass. He truly was the greatest. Matt has the whole story. Today we are going to talk about an athlete who told everyone that he was the greatest. He also liked to boast of how pretty he was, how he could float like a butterfly and sting like a bee. The sports announcer, Howard Cosell, once told this athlete during an interview that he was being truculent, to which he replied, I don't know what truculent means, but if it's good, I'm that. All right, I am talking, of course, about Muhammad Ali. And if you don't know what truculent means, like I didn't when I first read that quote, well, you can look it up. But you don't need to look up anything about Muhammad Ali, as I'm going to tell you everything you need to know about him in this lecture. Although, actually, that's not really true. Muhammad Ali is endlessly fascinating. So along the way, I'll give you some reading and watching suggestions, you know, if you'd like to learn more. But today, that's what we're going to do. We're going to explore the athletic and political revolution that was Muhammad Ali. And, and that is how I'm going to talk about Ali as America's most political of athletes, as the individual who demanded that we rethink our ideas about the relationship between sports and politics. But as a transition from what we talked about last time to our discussion of Muhammad Ali today, before we get to Ali, let me first tell you about a very interesting phenomenon in American sport history. And then I'm going to place Ali in the context of this story. 
Last time we discussed the links between sport and the Cold War. We explored how sports were used by the United States and the Soviet Union in their attempt to demonstrate their superiority compared to each other. Well, as part of that Cold War, in the 1950s, the leaders of the Soviet Union were telling the rest of the world about racism in the United States. You know, just look at the Jim Crow South, the Soviets said. The Americans like to tell the world about freedom, but that is not freedom. Well, in order to try to counter those claims, beginning in 1954, the U.S. State Department spent millions of dollars and sponsored international tours of American athletes, especially African-American athletes. And the idea was this. Black athletes would tour the globe and they would champion the American way. You know, these successful black athletes, they would go to other countries and just by their very appearance, demonstrate to the rest of the world that all was well, racially speaking, in the United States. For example, in 1955, the State Department asked Jesse Owens to go to India. You know, Owens, the American hero of the 1936 Berlin Games, he went to India. He tutored Indian track athletes in the finer points of their craft. But the larger goal was selling the United States to the Indian people. Life magazine called Owens the practically perfect envoy in a country that has violently exaggerated ideas about the treatment of Negroes in the United States. So it's Jesse Owens, American ambassador. In 1956, the University of San Francisco basketball team, they traveled to Latin America. The USF Dons, they had won the NCAA title in both 1955 and 1956. They were an integrated team that featured Bill Russell, one of the greatest basketball players of all time. And the message of this team's tour was this. Don't believe the stories about race problems in the United States. Just look at black and white getting along and playing together on the USF Dons. The State Department enlisted the African-American tennis star, Althea Gibson. Althea Gibson was the first black American, male or female, to play in the United States Open. And in 1956, she played the role of the American Cold Warrior when she went on a goodwill tour throughout Asia, playing exhibition tennis matches and just displaying the image of the prosperous African-American citizen. One last example. This one is from the Olympic Games. The United States Olympic Committee wanted to send this same message of racial progress to the nations that were gathered in Rome for the 1960 Olympics. These were the games that made Wilma Rudolph a star and also included a dynamic American boxer named Cassius Clay. We are getting to him. At these 1960 Olympic Games, for the first time ever, the American flag bearer, that is the athlete given the honor of holding the flag and leading Team USA into the stadium, for the first time ever, it was a black American. It was Rayford Johnson, a decathlete from UCLA. Rayford Johnson was an amazing athlete who from an athletic standpoint certainly deserved this honor, but the selection was political. It was made for reasons that have to do with propaganda. How can the United States have a race problem when the man given the honor of holding the flag is black? So in all these instances, here we have athletes serving as as cold warriors, as, as quote unquote good Americans. They are being presented as examples of all that is right with the United States. 
And this is the narrative we have been exploring with regard to the black athlete in our recent lectures. From Joe Lewis to Jackie Robinson to Wilma Rudolph, we've been exploring the story of humble, hardworking black athletes using sports to prove to white America that they belong, you know, integrating more and more into American society. And I don't want to take anything away from these athletes, and not at all. I mean, I, I told you how highly I think of Jackie Robinson. But I do want to point out that these are all stories where athletes played the games and competed in the events and just let their bodies do the talking. These athletes were political in the sense that they were trailblazers. You know, their political significance was in the way that they desegregated, competed, and succeeded in their sports. But again, all the while letting their bodies do their talking. The black athlete as trailblazer, we, we like that story in the United States. But what happened in the 1960s is different. A, a different type of political black athlete emerged. This was the decade when athletes, especially black athletes, they began speaking out against the injustices that they saw both inside the world of sports and just in American society more generally. So they were no longer just athletes. They were critics of the world around them. And this criticism is what's known as the revolt of the black athlete. And the athlete who led the revolt was Muhammad Ali. In my mind, there is no more interesting individual in the history of American sports than Muhammad Ali. He just demanded that you be interested in him. I mean, love him, hate him, whatever, you had to be interested. Ali was incredibly energetic. He was hyper-articulate. He was kind of shockingly brash. But you just could not ignore Muhammad Ali. Here's his story. He was born Cassius Marcellus Clay. That's his given name, Cassius Clay. Born in racially segregated Louisville, Kentucky in 1942. And Cassius Clay started boxing when he was a kid when someone stole his bike and he wanted to be able to beat up the bicycle thief if he ever found him. Well, he never found his bike, but he discovered that he was good at boxing. And Clay became a national figure when he won the gold medal in the light heavyweight division at the 1960 Rome Olympics. And in a press conference at those games, a Soviet reporter asked him, how does it feel to win glory for a country that does not give you the right to eat at a lunch counter in your hometown? And Cassius Clay responded, quote, Tell your readers we've got qualified people working on that problem, and I'm not worried about the outcome. To me, the USA is still the best country in the world, counting yours. So this is Cassius Clay as the cold warrior, as the, as the good American. And the American press loved him for this. His quote was reproduced in papers all over the country as evidence of this young man's good citizenship. The love affair would not last long, however. And that's because Ali is going to transform himself from one of America's biggest defenders into one of its fiercest critics. It became apparent early on that Cassius Clay was unlike any black American athlete before him, and really just like uh, unlike any American athlete ever. 
he exhibited a, a carnival-like brashness. He was a, a new vocal type of athletic figure. You know, he would predict the round in which his upcoming opponent would fall and accurately predict the round, I should say. And as I mentioned at the start, he told anyone who would listen that he was the greatest, the greatest that ever was. And he liked to talk about how pretty he was. And I think there are two ways of thinking about this talk, this this boastfulness. On the one hand, we could call it brilliant self-promotion, you know, good business. Get people interested in you. It doesn't matter if people are paying to see you win or lose just as long as they are paying. But I want to suggest a different way of thinking about this rhetoric. I think that these these boasts, you know, I'm so pretty and I am the greatest. I think they're political in nature. When Clay said, I am the greatest, he wasn't just bragging about his boxing abilities. It was an assertion of racial pride, a statement that all black people are great. When he said, I'm so pretty, I think he was making the larger claim that black is beautiful. You know, in the context of early 1960s America, one cannot say this about oneself unless you believe these things about the larger social group that you identify with. And so Clay was saying these things, making these statements of fierce racial pride really before it became fashionable in the black community to do so. Well, some in the press found all this talk amusing, but some clearly found it just plain annoying. And these boasts coming from a young man who wasn't even the champion. You know, athletes were supposed to be seen and not heard. Sports writers called Cassius Clay the Louisville lip. They called him Gaseous Cassius. He's all talk. But then Clay got his chance to fight for the title. There are two fights in the career of Cassius Clay slash Muhammad Ali that I want to focus on. The first was his 1964 fight that took place in Miami, and this was against the heavyweight champion, Sonny Liston. This was for the title. Sonny Liston was a ferocious and feared heavyweight. Actually, before getting into boxing, he was an enforcer for the mob, the, the guy you did not want to see if you were late on your loan payments. And Liston savaged his opponents. And the thought was that Clay, the, the Louisville lip, this kid who was all mouth and who actually described himself as pretty, the thought was he's about to get flattened. There's a great book about Muhammad Ali written by David Remnick. It's called King of the World. If you want to read about Ali, I think that's the best place to start. And Remnick does a great job giving us a sense of how much of an underdog Cassius Clay was in this fight. Sonny Liston was so favored in this fight that bookies wouldn't even take bets on him. They were so certain that, that he would win and have to pay out. The young boxing reporter for the New York Times, Robert Lipsight, he was told by his editors to map out the route from the boxing arena to the hospital. Clay was going to end up there, and Lipsight would need to get there fast. On the morning of the fight, the New York Post ran a column by the actor and comedian and boxing enthusiast Jackie Gleason. He wrote, I predict Sonny Liston will win in 18 seconds of the first round, and my estimate includes the three seconds Blabbermouth will bring into the ring with them. This was the near-unanimous sentiment. But then the two fighters climbed into the ring with each other, 
And people thought, my God, Clay is bigger than Liston. And then the fight began and Clay was dancing around the ring, throwing sharp, piercing jabs that Liston had no defense against. And they thought, my God, Clay is better than Liston. Cassius Clay dominated the fight, winning in the seventh round when Sonny Liston just stayed seated in his corner. Clay had beaten him up and demoralized him. And the boxing experts were shocked. And then two days later, after beating Sonny Liston, Cassius Clay held a press conference and America was shocked. After the break, Cassius Clay becomes Muhammad Ali. The Home Depot wants every mom to have their own outdoor oasis this Mother's Day. Whether that be a new space to relax or a beautiful garden upgrade, at The Home Depot, you can give mom a gift that's as unique as she is with a stylish and comfortable place to entertain or relax for the mom who does it all. And with convenient delivery, you won't have to stress over getting it to her either. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers for the mom who's great with gardening? Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to Bring out the most in our patios, walkways, and gardens with the Home Depot's Mother's Day Savings Event happening now. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Start your Mother's Day shopping and saving today by checking out the Home Depot's extensive selection online at homedepot.com or directly in-store near you with convenient pickup and delivery options. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. There's no distance too far for the perfect trip. Hi, checking in for... Or the perfect table. Hey, where are you? Coming! And when you get access to Resi Priority Notify with your Amex Platinum card... Hey, this looks amazing! I'm so glad you made it. And travel benefits at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. It's worth the trip. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Hey, everyone. It's Ted from Consumer Cellular, the guy in the orange sweater, and this is your wake-up call. If you're paying too much for wireless service, you don't have to keep having that nightmare. Consumer Cellular has the same fast, reliable coverage as the leading carriers for less. And for a limited time, new customers receive their second month free when they sign up and use promo code MONTHFREE by May 31st. So why keep spending more than you have to? Seriously, wake up and call 1-888-FREEDOM or visit ConsumerCellular.com. Taxes, fees, and other third-party charges will apply. See website for additional details. Clay announced that he was a pupil of Malcolm X and that he was a member of the Nation of Islam, a group sometimes called the Black Muslims. This was an organization that denounced racial integration. It was an organization that called for the separation of the races. It was an organization whose leaders said that white people were evil. They were the devil. And why would you want to integrate with the devil? Cassius Clay soon announced that he had a new name. Muhammad Ali, a name given to him by the leader of the Nation of Islam. Names were very important and political for Ali. He said that Cassius Clay was a slave name. And indeed, Clay was the name given to his ancestors by white slaveholders in Kentucky. 
no more with that slave name. Now it's Muhammad Ali. And when Ali announced that he was a member of the Nation of Islam, white Americans were outraged and many black Americans, too. The heavyweight championship is not a pulpit from which to preach racial separatism, the critics said. It is not a platform from which to preach hate. The critics told him, you need to be more like Joe Lewis, whose career had brought black and white closer together. But Ali said what he believed. And this makes him, in my mind, like Jack Johnson, who lived his life as he pleased. Neither Jack Johnson nor Muhammad Ali wore the mask, to go back to that phrase. And just so you know, when Ali would enter the ring for his fights, one of his corner men liked to shout, ghost in the house, ghost in the house. The ghost of Jack Johnson was with them. Muhammad Ali was a historian as well. Ali brought his racial politics into the ring. His next opponents, Floyd Patterson and Ernie Terrell, they refused to refer to him as Muhammad Ali, very pointedly calling him Cassius Clay. For doing this, Ali tortured them in the ring. In the Ernie Terrell fight, Ali would shout at Terrell, what's my name? Then pow. What's my name? Pow. Now, I keep comparing Ali to Jack Johnson. Jack Johnson had taunted his white opponents in the ring. Now, Ali was doing it to other black fighters who did not give him the respect of calling him what he asked to be called. So Muhammad Ali was provocative. He was controversial. And then came his stance on Vietnam. In 1966, Ali was drafted for service in Vietnam. Now, as a celebrity, he could have traveled from base to base, performing exhibitions, raising troop morale. I mean, just like Joe Lewis had done during World War II. But Ali said no. When he received his draft notice, he blurted out one of the iconic lines of the 60s. I ain't got no quarrel with them Viet Cong. And then in the coming weeks, his views, they, they, they sharpened. They became more nuanced. Ali drew on the ideas of black power leaders, and he articulated, as he saw it, the hypocrisy of a nation that asked black men to serve in the military while simultaneously denying them full and equal rights at home. In April of 1967, Muhammad Ali formally refused induction into the American military. So let's think about this. Muhammad Ali is breaking a lot of rules here. First of all, the idea of the athlete as rebel was just still unthinkable for many Americans. You know, athletes are many things, but they have historically been rule followers. Like soldiers, they follow orders, you know, the order of their coaches, the orders of society. And Ali is not following orders here. He's breaking the rules. In fact, by refusing induction, he was breaking the law. And very importantly, I think, Ali is also breaking the rules of American manhood. The, the, the soldier is one of the great masculine icons in every culture. And now here is this other masculine icon, the heavyweight champion of the world. And he is rejecting militarism. He is rejecting what many consider to be his duty to serve his country as a soldier and fight. And many Americans just could not tolerate the contradiction. They could not tolerate the idea of this heavyweight boxer 
refusing to fight on the real field of battle. And to bring race into the equation, they could not tolerate the fact that this black man, who they felt had been given so much by his country, they could not tolerate his refusal to fight for that country. And so Muhammad Ali would pay a price. When Ali refused induction into the military, his boxing license was immediately suspended. He could no longer fight and earn a living as a boxer. The federal courts convicted Ali of draft evasion, and they sentenced him to five years in federal prison. He appealed this ruling and remained free pending that appeal, but his boxing career looked to be over. And as it turned out, he lost the best years of his career. He would be banished from the boxing ring from April of 1967 to October of 1970, three and a half years. And I want to emphasize this. Ali was certain he was going to prison. You can think what you want about his refusal to be inducted, but I think we need to recognize how Ali was willing to lose everything and go to prison for five years for his beliefs. How many people can you say that about? During Ali's exile from boxing, another great heavyweight rose to the top. Joe Frazier, smoking Joe Frazier, they called him. Frazier was a black fighter from South Carolina by way of Philadelphia, and he ascended to the heavyweight title in Ali's absence. But then in 1970, Ali got his boxing license reinstated, and he won a couple of fights as soon as he returned. And then he signed to fight Joe Frazier in Madison Square Garden in March of 1971. And this is the second of the two Ali fights that I want to focus on. In 1971, boxing fans were given a rare treat. Two undefeated heavyweight fighters. Neither man had ever lost as a professional. And really, two fighters who could legitimately claim to be the heavyweight champ. So as a boxing contest, it's everything you could want. But it was so much more than just a boxing match. It was an entertainment spectacle. The fight was promoted by a Hollywood agent named Larry Perenchio. The TV announcer was the Hollywood actor, Burt Lancaster. Frank Sinatra was a ringside photographer for Life magazine. I mean, it was a carnival. But most of all, for our purposes, this fight was evidence of the deep cultural and political divide in the United States in the early 1970s. A divide over civil rights, and black protest and the Vietnam War. And it's so interesting how these two fighters, these two African-American fighters, they came to symbolically represent the two opposing sides of this divide. Ali willingly and actively played into this narrative. He, he portrayed himself as the champion of the left, the counterculture, the activists fighting for black freedom and an end to the war in Vietnam. Joe Frazier came to symbolize the other side. He was said to represent all those Americans who were uneasy with civil rights and black power protests. Uh, all those Americans who supported the war in Vietnam and were tired of all the anti-war marches. And it's not that Joe Frazier said that he believed in these things. It's that he said nothing. And so the hyper-political Ali went after Frazier. And it got pretty ugly. Ali said things about Joe Frazier 
that if a white fighter had said about Ali, Ali would have gone berserk. Ali called Joe Frazier dumb. He called him a gorilla. He made fun of his facial features. He called Joe Frazier an Uncle Tom. It was rough. And part of Ali's cruelty, it it was it was showmanship. It was gamesmanship. You know, this was Ali's style, always trying to get into the head of his next opponent. But I want to push a little deeper here because I think part of Ali's personal attack against Frazier was political. Ali attacks Frazier because Joe Frazier is apolitical, because Joe Frazier does not take a stand and espouse any political views. And for Ali, in this era of civil rights and black protest, at a time when the Vietnam War is raging, being apolitical is unforgivable. It's a sin. There's a famous line from the 1960s. You can't be neutral on a moving train. You have to take a stand. And so when Frazier does not take a stand on the issues of the day, Ali goes after him. Well, the fight itself was worthy of all the hoopla. It it may be the greatest heavyweight title fight in history. Madison Square Garden was electric, and and this fight ebbed and flowed. It had twists and turns. It was Ali, then it was Frazier, then Ali stormed back, and then Frazier countered back and forth. In the 15th and final round, Joe Frazier threw a monstrous left hook that dropped Ali to the canvas. And Ali got up and he finished the fight. But the knockdown was the most dramatic moment of that competition. And Joe Frazier beat Ali that night. Frazier was the unanimous winner on the judges' scorecards. And let me quickly run down what happened next for Muhammad Ali. Well, first of all, in June of 1971, the Supreme Court acquitted Ali of his draft evasion charge. He was actually acquitted on a technicality. Essentially, the military hadn't filled out his paperwork properly. But the acquittal really came because the national opinion about the Vietnam War had shifted since Ali took his stand in 1967. By the early 1970s, most Americans opposed the war in Vietnam. And the court did not want to send Ali to prison for five years for what was now a much more mainstream view. So Ali was free to fight. And Ali and Frazier would fight each other two more times. And Ali won both of those fights. The first rematch was a lackluster fight that took place in New York. The second was an epic battle that took place in Manila in the Philippines. It's been known as ever since as the Thrilla in Manila. It was an absolutely brutal fight. But Ali said it was the closest he ever came to dying in the ring. And in between these two fights, Ali recaptured the heavyweight title an astounding 10 years after he had first won it, when he once again shocked the boxing world and defeated a seemingly unbeatable fighter, George Foreman. This was a fight that took place in Zaire in Africa. It has forever been known as the Rumble in the Jungle. If you are interested in this fight and why it takes place in Africa, go watch the film When We Were Kings. It is an awesome documentary about these two Black Americans fighting in Africa. And then finally, just to finish all this off, in 1978, 
Muhammad Ali both lost the heavyweight title to a young boxer named Leon Spinks, and then Ali won back the title in the rematch later that year. Muhammad Ali won the heavyweight championship three different times, 1964, 1974, and 1978. It's remarkable. And here's one of my favorite historical tidbits. That second Ali Spinks fight, it took place in the Louisiana Superdome. And the national anthem was sung by Joe Frazier. Boxing is such a strange sport. That's all for now. Next time on the Untold History of Sports in America, presented by One Day University, protest at the 1968 Olympics. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. Being a chef means keeping your cool in the kitchen. And with Resi Priority Notify and Global Dining Access through my Amex Platinum card, right this way, it's nice to try someone else's food for a change. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA.